Well, verse 47 through 59 is a mouthful. Huh? Probably no passage of Scripture that has been so perverted and twisted as the one I just read. No passage so intentionally misinterpreted and falsely given to it a meaning that it was never intended to bear. J.C. Ryle noted this. He said, Fallen man in interpreting the Bible has an unhappy aptitude for turning meat into poison. The things that were written for his benefit, he often makes an occasion of falling. And I think that's especially true of this portion of Scripture. Again, a portion of Scripture that was written for our benefit, a portion of Scripture that is meant to elevate the hearer from the earthly to the heavenly, and a portion of Scripture that is meant to draw our attention towards the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the eternal life that he freely offers to men. Now, we live in a world that is desperate. We live in a world that is uh, spiritually hungry, uh, desperate for meaning, desperate for hope, both and all of which this portion of Scripture was meant to satisfy. Uh, Again, because this text that I just read points us to Christ, and Christ is mankind's only hope for obtaining forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Mankind's only hope for obtaining righteousness and joy and peace uh, with God. Now, as we start to work our way through the text, before we do that, I'm going to stop. And before I tell you what it means, I'm going to begin with the negative. I'm going to tell you what it doesn't mean. Right? So this is the negative, what the text that we just read does not mean. The eating and drinking of which Jesus speaks of here does not mean literally eating his flesh and does not mean literally drinking his physical blood. Now, in one manner, that seems absolutely self uh, evident to me, but there have been those who have accused Jesus of teaching and promoting cannibalism, which of course is absolutely beyond absurd. And if eating and drinking here that Jesus speaks of were literal in any sense of the idea, that would not only be absolutely revolting to the Jews and everybody else, but that would have flatly uh, contradicted the Old Testament teaching as Jews were strictly forbidden from drinking blood and Jews could not even eat meat that had blood still in it. See Leviticus 17. Also, so this has nothing to do with the literal and the physical. Also, this portion of Scripture has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper as been pointed out by a number of commentators throughout the years. For a number of different reasons, I'll just give you a few. Number one, the original hearers, who you have to take into consideration, they would have no possibility of expecting or recognizing that he was talking about the Lord's Supper. Why? Because the Lord's Supper hadn't been instituted yet. Right? That's a year later at the time of his, uh, at the night of his uh, arrest. Secondly, this has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper because Christ is addressing a group of unbelievers here. Right? And the Lord's Supper is for believers, not for unregenerate unbelievers. Number three, this is not referencing the Lord's Supper, because the eating and drinking spoken of here by the Lord is in reference to salvation. He's talking about salvation. But the eating and drinking that goes on at the Lord's table are for those who are already saved. Right? So this is not about the Lord's Supper. And if Jesus were teaching that one can be saved only by partaking of the Lord's Supper then that would contradict the emphasis that he has been making in this chapter that salvation is through faith. He said that a number of times, verse 29, verse 35, verse 40, verse 47, and he would be contradicting the emphasis of the entire New Testament that teaches that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, 
in the person of Jesus Christ alone, right? And to interpose a bodily act, as it were, between the soul of man and salvation has absolutely no precedent in Scripture, right? There, there's not something that you have to do, right, physically uh, uh, to, to get salvation. That's not what the Scripture teaches, right? That would also rule out that salvation would not be possible for those who do not, who cannot, who have never received uh, 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 the Lord's Supper, such as the thief on the cross, such as those uh, infants who, who die uh, very early on. And this kind of thinking, this line of thinking that suggests this has something to do with the Lord's Supper and you've got to take it, has nothing to or doesn't even take into consideration that there are lots of people who take the Lord's Supper, yet they don't know Christ in a salvific fashion. Right? So again, I see there's absolutely no possible way this has anything to do with, with the Lord's Supper here in this portion of Scripture in John chapter 6. Nor does this portion of Scripture speak to the issue of what the Roman Catholic Church calls transubstantiation. The Roman Catholic Church gets out of this portion of Scripture this doctrine that is uh, uh, blasphemous. It teaches, they teach, that the Lord's Supper involves the physical flesh and the physical blood of Christ transubstantiated into the form of the, the bread and the cup, the wafer and the wine, if you will. And again, that's a tremendous error. I was hoping this morning that we'd have some time to delve into this a little more fully, but I just don't have time. But I do want to address it. Perhaps sometime in the future we'll address it in full. And I'm going to say some things that are going to, especially if you're new or you're a guest here, they're going to sound unkind to you. And I absolutely promise you from the bottom of my heart, they're truthful. They're not unkind, but they're truthful. And what I say is said to you out of love, because more than likely, I would bet you by uh, just asking that there are a lot of people in this room who either know someone who is uh, involved in Roman Catholicism or uh, you're acquainted with someone. Right? You maybe have a, a friend or, or a family member, member that is caught into this, this system. But Roman Catholicism must be categorized or characterized as a false religious system when you measure it against the Word of God. Because it teaches another Christ, and it teaches another way of salvation, another gospel. And the very heart of Roman Catholic teaching is transubstantiation, or what they would refer to as the Mass. Again, it is a blasphemous denial of the truth, and it is a denial of the singular sacrifice of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Where supposedly in the Mass, the Roman Catholic priest has the power to reach up into heaven and bring Christ down, and Christ must submit himself to the priest as the eternal victim. And somehow, magically, by the consecrated words, so-called, of the priest, the bread and wine are transubstantiated or changed into the literal and physical uh, body and blood of Christ. They would say the real presence of Christ is there in the bread and the wine, the real body, the real blood of Christ. And again, that's error on the highest order. And again, I say this out of love, that if you believe that, if you believe what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, instead of submitting yourself to the authority of the Word of God alone, I absolutely guarantee you, based on the authority of the Word of God, that mistake will cost you your soul eternally. It is that serious of an issue. 
That is why more than one of the reformers were more than willing to go to the stake and to be burned alive rather than to capitulate or to give into this idolatrous, blasphemous system in which Satan and himself and his lies have taken countless millions upon millions of souls trapped or captive into that damning error that, again, blasphemes God and blasphemes Christ and promotes another Christ and another gospel that is not a biblical one. It's that level of error. It is a false error, a damning error. It completely corrupts the Lord's Supper, teaches an error that if people believe upon it, that their salvation is found by eating and drinking this literal so-called body and blood of Christ, which is, again, completely against biblical truth. There's no way to confuse biblical Christianity with Roman Catholicism. Now, again, that may sound very harsh to you, but I say that out of a tremendous amount of love for Roman Catholics, who I do love, because they're trapped in a false system. They're trapped in a false system. Again, I've taught on the issue in the past, and maybe we'll do it sometime in the future to kind of get a full picture of it. I'm not the authority in the room. This book is the authority in the room. And everything I've just told you is based on the truth of the Scripture. People who are trapped in that system are in the process of perishing. When you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you you have cancer, he's not being unkind to you. He's telling you the truth. And if he's a good doctor, he's loving you by telling you the truth. Now, again, I use analogy all the time. You can go down to the road to a, a doctor who's got a happy face on and clown feet and gives out cotton candy and just tell everybody what, he, what you want to hear, or you can listen to the truth and be confronted by the truth and be changed by the truth. We're truth tellers. We're talking about the gospel. We're saying about the gospel. That's the truth. There's salvation found in one way alone, that being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That truth is found in this book, the Bible, the Bible alone. It is a serious error. So again, John chapter 6 has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper, and most certainly this has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Mass. The fourth reason on my list of why this has nothing to do, again, just to some of the phraseology, we don't have time to go into it, but in the Lord's Supper, the Lord never used the word flesh, right? And when speaking of the Lord's Supper, he said, this is my body. It's not talking about cannibalism. If you look at John 6 and 63, the fifth reason why this has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper He says, Jesus says himself, hey, fellas, get a clue what I'm talking to you about, right? I'm not talking about the physical. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, right? Get out of the carnal mindset. Finally, number six, again, it's abundantly clear as you read the passage that this whole passage is referring to Christ's substitutionary offering of himself on the cross. In this portion of scripture, his flesh is the bread, right? Verse 51, that I will give for the life of the world. He's talking about his substitutionary dying on the cross, offering himself. Now again, it is amazing that fallen men can so misinterpret the Bible that that which was supposed to be a blessing and food for the soul can be turned into absolute poison, but men do it all the time. And it's amazing that men do not understand spiritual truth and are always so quick to try to give a carnal meaning to a spiritual truth. For example, if you've been paying attention in our study of the book of John up to this point, you'll go, oh yeah, I get it, I see it. Because I remember Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Well, he was a a Pharisee, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he was the teacher of Israel. And the teacher of Israel could not get it 
when Jesus said, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be what? Born again. Couldn't get it. He's stuck in the literal. What about the woman in the well? She just wants a drink of water. Here comes somebody who says, I'm going to give you the water of life. You'll never have to come back. And she goes, well, I'd like some of that. And he goes, you still don't understand what I'm telling you about. I'm talking about the water of life, right? She didn't understand. He was offering to her literal water. Again, in the context of John chapter 6, you've got that whole group of people that he's addressing, that the bread that he's offering for them was not the manna that sufficed for the uh, physical well-being of of the nation of Israel when they were in the wilderness, right? It wasn't the bread he gave them in dinner the night before. He was talking about their spiritual well-being. He was offering himself to them as the bread of life, right? So he's contrasting all in this section that, that again, man in the wilderness, people ate it. What happened? They died. Not much help, right? To the bread that he is providing, that he is offering to them and to the world that suffices for eternity, right? Uh, uh, that provides eternal life, freedom from death. Again, his bread is offering himself to the world, not just for the body, but for their soul. Again, his bread is the bread that overcomes the curse in this world, which is sin and death, and that which gives eternal life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. Right? He shall live forever. A.W. Pink summarizes Jesus' meaning here by saying, I am that which every sinner needs, without which he will surely perish. Right? I am that which every sinner needs without which he will surely perish. Again, it's amazing that men, fallen men, are so quick not to understand spiritual truth and so quick to give carnal meanings to that which is clearly spiritual. J.C. Ryle says the plain truth is there is a morbid anxiety in fallen man to put a carnal sense on spiritual expressions wherever he possibly can. He struggles hard to make religion a matter of forms and ceremonies, of doing and performing, of sacraments and ordinances, of sense and sight. He secretly dislikes that system of Christianity which makes the state of heart the principal thing and labors to keep sacraments and ordinances in second place. That's a good quote. All right, so what does this not mean? It has nothing to do with all of the nonsense that I've just said. What does it have to do, right? What is this portion of scripture speak to well again when christ speaks of his flesh and his blood or or the flesh and blood of the son of man he's speaking about his sacrifice he's speaking about his sacrifice his own sacrifice of his body that he'll offer up on the cross to die in place of sinners so this portion of scripture is about the atonement this portion of scripture is about his death and the satisfaction made by his suffering as our substitute. It's about the redemptive effect of his enduring our penalty for our sins in his body. That's what this portion of scripture is about. So again, when he talks about eating and drinking, he's not talking about anything to do with the physical. He's talking about spiritual. He's talking about feeding on him, on his sacrifice by faith, believing upon him that he is the Lord, who he is, what he has done. That's what it means to eat. Believing who who he, uh, everything that he said, that's what it means to, to, to drink, to take him in completely. Just like when you eat and drink, you take it in completely. You assimilate it. Uh, assimilate it. You, you appropriate it. 
That's what he's talking about, appropriating the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, again, just like we do on a physical level, right? You only get the benefit from food when you take it in. You only get the benefit of the atonement that Christ has made on behalf of the sinner when you believe upon him, when you take him in, right? So eating and drinking is a metaphor. It's a picture of a spiritual reality. He's using a physical picture to speak of, of spiritual truth. Again, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. He who eats me shall also live because of me. Verse 58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread right, shall live forever, right? If the woman at the well was here, she'd say, give me some of that bread, just like she said, give me some of that water, right? She doesn't get it. These guys don't get it. It's a metaphor, but with just a little bit of common sense, everybody knows it's a metaphor. It's not difficult. Jesus is saying, look, it's not enough to admire me. It's not enough just to listen to me. You have to eat. You have to appropriate you have to receive me in, in total. Again, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. So again, it starts with believing in the person of Jesus Christ, believing who he is in his preexistence, his incarnation, the fact that he's God come in the flesh. But again, believing in Christ is not enough. Something else has to occur. You have to take him in. You have to appropriate him. He has to become a part of you. You have to believe in his dying blood. Verse 53. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Now again, he's speaking on a spiritual level, not literally, not physically. His blood is simply a metonym. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that word, metonym. M-E-T-O-N-Y-M. It's a figure of speech. It's a metonym. And a metonym, you may not be familiar with that word, but we use them all the time, right? It's a substitute. It's a word used as a substitute for something else closely associated to it. For example, if I said uh, we're going to uh, Washington, right? A lot of times we use Washington as an understanding of the seat where the United States government is, right? That's Washington. In this case, he is using blood as a metonym, for his death. It's a word used in exchange for another word, right? His death, not just his death, but his violent death on the cross as a final sacrifice for sin. Now, I'm going to show you how you're going to understand this easier. You're going to understand the metaphor and you're going to, that the Lord is using, and you're going to understand that blood is a metonym speaking of Christ's death. So you're going to put a mark there so we can come back and not get lost. But go back to Matthew chapter 26. Go to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles there in the pews right in front of you. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Now, this is the first Lord's Supper, right? 26, 26. Now, again, in John 6 that we're looking at, doesn't refer to the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper, where Jesus speaks about his body and blood, obviously point forward to his atoning death, right? So, again, this is the night before he's betrayed, Matthew 26, verse 26. Trying to understand the metaphor, trying to understand the metonym. 26, 26. While they were eating, 
Jesus took some bread, and I'm going to give you a test, so pay attention, okay? While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. After blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Question number one, what is the bread? Answer? I'm sorry? Thank you very much. Okay, should I go? Did I go too fast? He took some bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. The question is, What is the bread? The answer is bread. He is using a metaphor. And everybody there understands that. Verse 27. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Now, what is in the cup? Is it his literal blood? No. And in case you don't think I know what I'm talking about, verse 29 gives me the answer. I read ahead. Right? Verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day that I drink in the, in it new with you in the Father's kingdom. The cup, what was in the cup? It was the fruit of the vine. Right? It was a picture. A picture, not literal blood. It's a metaphor. Right? It, and now, how, how is blood used as a metonym? Right? Again, a word that's used as a substitute for something that is closely associated. When he had taken the cup, given thanks, he said to them, drink, all, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Blood as a metonym here is for his death. This is the blood of the covenant. I'm talking about my death. I'm talking about the death that is coming, the final sacrifice for sin. All right, and I'll give you a couple other examples. Don't turn, but just listen. You see it in Acts 20, verse 28. Right? Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Romans 3, verse 25. Verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25 whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed. Blood is a metonym for his death on the cross, his final sacrifice for sin. Romans 5 and 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood. Right? Uh, how much? A quart? A gallon? I don't mean to speak irreverently. But you can see... It is ridiculous to try to take a literal meaning there, right? Justified by his blood, we're justified by his, his death on the cross. Ephesians 1 and 7, we have redemption in him. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, uh, trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. If I were to go on, which I won't, Colossians, Colossians 1, 20, Hebrews 9, 12, uh, 9 14 10 19 10 29 hebrews 13 12 first peter 12 first uh, uh, peter 1 2 first peter uh, 1 9 uh, 1 john 1 7 revelation 1 verse 5 chapter 5 verse 9 chapter 7 verse 14 chapter 12 verse 11 just to name a few 
it all says the same thing. It says the word blood, but it is a, a metonym speaking of Christ's death. So eating and drinking is a metaphor referring not only to the necessity of Christ's death, but the necessity of, again, you understanding and you personally appropriating the reality, you feeding by faith on the eternal necessity uh, of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and then gaining eternal life, right? That's what's going on. Now, go back to John chapter 6. And as you turn there, you might remember, if you think of the context of this passage of Scripture... Another thing that I think kind of, I, I, think, I think I've hammered the point home, but this will even hammer home even more, right? Just think of the context of what's going on there. To all those people, we're not there, but the text tells us what's going on there, right? So if you understand the context, we don't import error into the text and confuse it, right? Context is king. You might remember chapter 6 is a time where there is a Jewish festival called the Passover, right? You look up in John chapter 6, verse 4, you'd see that. Now, what happened at the Passover? Well, the Passover, obviously, was that festival of remembrance of Israel's deliverance from Egypt when God sent the angel of death to slay the firstborn in Egypt. And the only people who were spared were spared the firstborn dying by sacrificing a lamb and spreading its blood on the doorpost. But again, only if you were obedient, only if you appropriated the shed blood of the lamb, right? You had to take the lamb. You had to take it in your home. You had to sacrifice this. You had to sacrifice its blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And then the Passover meal consisted of eating the sacrificial lamb. Now, let's try to recall to your memory what's one of the important themes that comes out of John chapter 1, verse 29, about Jesus that John is promoting. John, he saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? Behold the Lamb of God. So the Lamb of God is a very important theme in John. <clears throat> Why is John writing? He is writing so that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing that Jesus is the Christ, they would have eternal life. But just like there was no safety for Israelites in Egypt who did not eat of the Passover lamb and apply the blood the night the firstborn were slain, so too there's no safety for the sinner who does not eat the flesh of Christ and drink his blood again metaphorically. So again, the context is speaking about Christ's atonement. That thing that is of absolute value and necessity for salvation. So again, in this context, speaking to this Jewish group of individuals about eating his flesh in the context of the Passover, right? Again, by eating the Passover lamb, Israel identifies with that sacrifice, with the word of God, the sacrifice that God has commanded. And again, he is trying to help them make that connection. That he is the Passover. He is the Passover lamb. He's trying to help them see that connection to what they're doing on a physical level and the spiritual reality to it. So again, instead of John chapter 6 being some kind of portion of a convoluted mess of heretical error that men like to turn it into, it's a tremendously encouraging portion of Scripture. It is a wonderful portion of Scripture because Jesus is offering himself as the one alone who can provide salvation for the world through his death to those who believe upon him, to those who receive him in total, to those who appropriate his death. 
again, just like the Israelites did in the receiving the, the blessing of the Passover lamb by faith, by spreading the blood on the doorposts and eating of that lamb's flesh. J.C. Ryle says, whenever a man, feeling his own guilt and sinfulness, lays hold on Christ and trusts in the atonement made for him by Christ's death, he at once eats of the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood. Right? There's that picture. That's what this portion of Scripture is talking about. This portion of Scripture is talking about saving faith. This portion of Scripture is talking about saving faith, those who have it and those who don't have it. So again, it's another life-giving, eternal life-defining passage of Scripture given to men so that they might believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might have eternal life that God freely offers as a gift through His Son to those who will come and take His Son by faith. All right? Now that's the intro. Let's look at the text. Remember I told you the overall theme of the chapter, again, is spiritual defection. Uh, Some people claim they follow Christ. Some people will follow him for a while. But false followers of Christ will flee from him when he says things, just like I just read, just like we're going through here, just when he says words they don't like to hear, they flee from him. So in the context of our study, we've seen Christ meet the physical needs of the people, right? He spent a day healing them, and then he's, he's fed them uh, with uh, demonstrating again a tremendous uh, amount of compassion and, and mercy, uh, uh, his power, his deity. And he is trying to turn their attention from the physical to the spiritual. And he is offering himself to this crowd who he has just provided dinner for the night before, who wants breakfast, and he says, look, I'm going to give you something better than breakfast. I'm going to give you the true bread from heaven. I'm going to give you not something that just takes care of your belly, but I'm going to take care, I'm going to offer you something that will take care of your soul. Something that has the power to save. Something that has the, sat, the power to satisfy the soul. The bread that comes down from heaven that gives spiritual life to the world. But the majority of the crowd doesn't get it. The majority of the crowd doesn't understand. The majority of the crowd won't believe in him. Now, I've told you the Jews, and when John uses that phraseology, it's the Jewish religious leaders. They've already made up their mind against him. They want him dead. They're grumbling against him, complaining, murmuring. Verse 41. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. So again, the false religious leaders, those who already hate Christ, who stood in constant opposition to him, they have no concept of him, no desire to understand his glory. They're ignorant to the reality of his person. And they say that in verse 42. And they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Right? Uh, They're already fixed in unbelief. And again, like all people fixed in unbelief, they've already made up their mind. They've rejected the evidence that Jesus is more than just a man, although he has proved that in front of them over and over again. Because as I've told you over and over again, unbelief has nothing to do with evidence. Unbelief is a determined rejection of the truth from the heart. It's a heart issue. It's not an intellectual issue. It's not an evidentiary issue. Verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So to these self-satisfied, self-religious, spiritually dead, false religious leaders, Christ tells them, look guys, you're never coming to me. You're never come to me on your own. You can't, you won't. You don't have the ability unless God in his kindness draws the dead sinner to himself 
God in his kindness draws the dead sinner, changes the sinner's heart, and changes the sinner's will to believe. Now, as I told you before, last time, verse 44, it is a word of truth spoken, not to repel, but verse 44 is a word spoken to humble. Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, I'll raise him up on the last day. Christ wasn't closing the door, so to speak, in their face. He is pointing out to them the only direction where their hope of eternal life can be found is that they would call out to God the Father for mercy, that he would open their eyes to see their need of Christ, because again, mankind's only hope lies outside of himself. Mankind needs help. Mankind needs grace. Mankind needs the mercy of God to call him from death to life. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, And they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He's again saying, look, those who have heard and learned from the fathers, from the prophets, where do we find the fathers and the prophets? We find them in the Old Testament text of the, of the, of the Bible, right? The Old Testament text points out the fact that Jesus happens to be the Christ, just like the fathers and the prophets foretell. And if people would take up the Bible and read, those kind of people will come, right? Those who listen to the prophets will be taught of God. So no man comes to God apart from the revelation found in the word of God that has been given to men connecting it to or salvation to the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 46. Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father, right? He's not saying, look, uh, when I say they shall be taught of God, it's not that you're having some kind of out-of-body experience and a vision in a cloud. No, he's saying, I'm driving you back to the text and the only one who's seen the Father is me. I'm, I'm the only one who has first-hand eyewitness knowledge. If you want truth, you get the truth out of the Bible. That's what he's saying, not through your experience. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has present tense eternal life. He who believes has present tense eternal life. So Jesus is speaking of eternal life, referring to not just quantity, but quality of life. And he's the only one that can give quality of life. Have you ever noticed people are looking for a better life? We talk about this all the time. People are looking for help. People are looking for hope. People are trying all kinds of things they think that are going to give them hope. And they're all false hope. People drink. People do drugs. People get involved in illicit sexual affairs because somehow they think that's going to bring them happiness. And all that does is double down on their misery. Because time and truth march hand in hand and there's a day of accountability coming for all men's sins. What you do in the dark, God will shout one day from the rooftops. No one's getting a pass. The psalmist tell us, tells us that God sees everything in the light or in the dark the same. The same to him. When do people do most of their sin? When do people do most of their crime? It's usually not in broad daylight. They like to do it in darkness because they think no one will see. How foolish. Someone smarter than me said this. Sin makes you stupid. And that's what sin does. It makes people stupid. They think they can get away from it. The only one who can offer you what you're looking for, the only one who can offer you quality of life, is the person of Jesus Christ, because he's the only one that possesses it. When you come to Christ by faith, he gives you life eternal, quality, through his finished work on the cross. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4, we actually become partakers of the divine nature. Now that does not mean, as some people falsely teach, that we become little deities. Rather, that means that the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within us. 
It gives us righteousness and peace and joy, as it says in Romans 14, 7. It means that we're now made spiritual. It means that we're not just stuck in the literal physical, but now we can actually commune and understand and know God through Christ. We have Christ in us, the Holy Spirit abiding in us. We have life that brings true help, true hope, true peace. We have life that is able to be lived differently from and apart from anything that this world has to offer. You know the world when it lies to you about if you do these things, you know, like again, buy the car, the house, do the, do the uh, um, adult beverage, whatever. They never tell you the hook. That the adult beverage is going to lead you to a life of despair. You can't afford that car. You can't afford that house. And guess what? It doesn't matter what color you color your hair. The reality is it's the color it is. Sorry. You keep fixing those wrinkles and keep tucking it up. And there's going to be something. There's not going to be enough left for you to speak. Right? Because you're trying to deny the reality of who you are. The world's trying to sell you something that's a lie. Lord Jesus Christ isn't selling you anything. Lord Jesus Christ is offering to you life. Abundant life. Free life. Free life. Eternal life as a present possession. That's why I read Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, etc. But God. God being rich in mercy. God being of great love with which he loved us. God took us even when we were dead in our transgressions and made us alive together with Christ and by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Think about that for a moment. That in the eternal mind of God, we who are believers are already sitting in the heavenlies at the right, the right hand of the, uh, of the sun. You go, how in the world, why in the world would he do that? I have no idea. Why would he save me? I have no idea. Other than he's gracious and merciful. Loves his son, wants a bride for his son who will worship and serve and praise and adore him in time and all for eternity. Jesus again says, verse 47, truly, truly. And again, when he says that, look, this is something very significant. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. It is a statement of fact. It is a statement of reality. It is a declaration of truth based on God's election, God's gracious calling, God's drawing of that dead individual towards himself, overcoming the sinner's resistance. And those who've been made sons of God through new birth do indeed listen to the Father. They come to Christ. They believe in God's gracious uh, person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and because they believe in God's call and God's Christ, they have life, true life, spiritual life, eternal life. Again, a, a present possession. Now, I just want to stop and make sure we get this in the order. He who believes has eternal life, right? Right? It is not that we believe, and then as a result of that belief, we're given eternal life. It's the other way around. Again, Ephesians 2, where are we? Before Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. It's only until but God comes in, right? We couldn't give eternal life to ourselves. I've talked to you about that before. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who used to be the pastor a number of years ago at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a great teacher, he had this illustration that taught this truth well. He said it's like a soldier on a battlefield, right? The soldiers are on a battlefield. They're, they're advancing to the next ridge. There's a round of gunfire that opens upon them. Everybody falls to the ground. 
Now, once the gunfire is silenced, the enemy fire is silenced, the commander gives the command to advance. And some get up and advance. Others who are dead do not. The ones who get up and advance are the ones who are alive and can hear the voice of the commander. It's not the getting up that gives them life. It's the fact that they have life that allows them to get up. Does that make sense? And that's what Jesus is saying here. He who believes upon Christ does so because he already has everlasting life. They can listen because as a gift of God's grace, he has opened their ears, he's brought them from death to life. Again, the point, the picture goes back to the person of God, the glory of God. So again, the hearing and the believing are marks of the existence of a new life of God implanted in that person, again, by God's mercy and God's grace. Right? Salvation is always to the praise of the glory of God's grace. We're the beneficiaries of God's kindness in time, but we in turn uh, praise the glory of God's grace. Anytime we talk about the doctrine of election, we're talking about praising the glory of God's grace. We're not talking about us. We're not talking about how smart we are. We're not talking about privilege. We're talking about the praise of the glory of God's grace. God gets all the credit. God is a sovereign over the realm of salvation. Verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, this is the second time he's used this phraseology, describing himself as the bread of life. You see it back up in verse 35. Again, I am. Remember, Jesus uses these I am statements because, again, he's got Jewish listeners in his presence, and he's trying to help them understand. When he makes that I am statement, he's pointing that listener back to the Old Testament picture of God the Father who discloses himself to men as I am that I am. Right? So all these I am statements... Right? I am the, the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. These are images to point the listener back that he is making, again, a claim to deity. He is making a claim to deity and all these exclusive, exclusive, uh, exclusive claims that he is the only one that men need and by the only way that men can enter into the Father's presence, Jesus Christ. Again, John fourteen six says, I am, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Well, you know what? You, you Christians are very kind of exclusive. You kind of say all the other world religions are not correct. Well, yeah, that's true. Okay, you have another point to bring? That's reality. I didn't write it. It's what it says. Jesus Christ says this is reality. Jesus Christ, I guarantee, cares, you, cares more about your eternal soul than anybody in the world, in the world system that's lying to you, that says there's many ways to go to God, which are all nothing but satanic lies inspired by satanically inspired men. Jesus Christ says, look, if you want eternal life, I want to give it to you, but I'm the way. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. All exclusive claims. All claims of the necessity of the person of Jesus Christ as the one whom men and women need if they want to see eternal life. Note, he says, I am the way. He doesn't say, I am the way, plus do this list. Don't do this list. He says, I'm in. It's an exclusive claim. Now, when Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, it is both, listen, it's an invitation and it's a warning. It's an invitation and it's a warning. When he says, verse 48, I am the bread of life, it's an invitation and it's a warning. It's an invitation to come to him, to come to Christ. And it's a warning against unbelief. Those who have eternal life are those, only those who believe in Christ those and only those who have entrusted to Christ in total for their salvation. I am the bread of life. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean? 
again, when he says I'm the bread of life, he's talking on a spiritual level. He's saying, look, that I am alone the one who can satisfy the deepest longings of the human soul. I'm the only one that can satisfy. Now, we, like the crowd, often think our major issue in life is physical, right? Again, Jesus just provided dinner last night. The crowd there that's at the lake followed him back to Capernaum, right? Uh, they want breakfast, right? They're thinking physical. He said, no, 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 no. Your greatest need is spiritual. You need spiritual truth. You need spiritual understanding. Again, I am the bread of life. A.W. Pink adds this. He says, blessed, precious words are these, as Christ is saying, I am that which every sinner needs and without which he will surely perish. I am that which alone can satisfy the soul and fill the aching void of the unregenerate heart. That too is a tremendous statement. I am it. There's no other way. And I'm, I, I, I am alone, the one who can satisfy your soul. I alone am the one who can fill that aching void in your unregenerate heart. I am the bread of life. Verse 49, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So again, it's evident he's teaching a spiritual lesson here. He's making a comparison between himself and the physical manna. The fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. What happened to him? They died. The bread that he is now offering, that God offers through him to the world, he says that one may eat of it and not die. So this discussion is a discussion on eternal life or eternal death. It's an eternal life or an eternal death matter. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He's going to reinforce that in verse 54. He eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life. Then again in verse 58, This is the bread which come down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. Again, he's speaking on a spiritual level. He is comparing himself to the man in the wilderness, which gave physical sustenance. But men ate it and they died. And he's saying, look, I'm the living bread out of heaven. He who takes of this bread, he shall live forever. And again, look at the times he uses that phraseology, the bread. Verse 48, go back up there. I am the bread of life. Uh, your fathers ate man in the wilderness, they died. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, the bread which also I shall give. I shall give future tense. Hmm. What's going to happen in the future when he gives his flesh? For the life of the world is my flesh. Right? The bread that I shall give in the future for the life of the world is my flesh. Now again, he's using that specific term to speak to the issue of his future upcoming death on the cross. That he is going to lay down his life. I give my life. Right? Nobody takes it from him, as he says in John 10, 18. So when Jesus says in verse 51 that he is the bread that I shall give for the life of the world, again, he's speaking about his suffering, his physical suffering, his dying on Calvary's cross as a sacrifice for a sin. And he says, look, I'm going to do that for the life of the world. I'm going to give my body to death on account of or for the sake, for the purchase to procure 
to obtain a life, eternal life for the world. Again, he's saying, look, I'm going to lay down my life, and it's going to be the ransom, the payment price, the redemptive price for eternal life that I will purchase on behalf of sinners. Stephen Cole, a pastor retired now but out west, says this, that the bread analogy also pictures death. Right? The bread analogy. That's why he uses the bread, the bread, the bread, because it's a picture of death. Cole says this, as Christ says in John 12 and 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Cole says, to make bread, the grain of wheat had to die, then the fruit of the grain had to be plucked, crushed, made into flour before it was baked into bread. Even so, Jesus had to die in order to be the bread that gives eternal life to those who eat it in faith. I thought that was a good picture, too. Even the bread is a picture of his death. Because the, the kernel has to fall on the ground and die and then be crushed. I am the living bread, verse 51, that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, it's very evident he's speaking about his death. James Boyce makes this comment. He says, I'm glad that Jesus went on to speak of the cross because Christ without the cross is of no use. We can look to him as his, uh, uh, to look, we can look to his example, to the way he led his life. We can admire it, but the life alone does not help us. We can admire the life, but we cannot live it. Besides, we are condemned by that life, for it is the standard of what God would require us as his creatures. Christ without the cross is of no use to us. He condemns us. Fortunately, there's more. For Jesus went on to speak of the cross and eventually to die upon it and then to rise again. Now there's hope. He died for our sins. The chastisement of our peace is upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. In his resurrection life, we now have life. In his righteousness through death, we are now reckoned righteous in the sight of a holy and living God. That too is a tremendously great statement. Christ without a cross is of no use to us. You can look at him and admire him and you can say, well, what a great life. If we just lived his life, which you can't do and all his life does is condemn you because he's perfect and that's what God requires and his perfect life condemns you for your non-perfect life. So as we're talking in Romans 7 in our evening services, stop trying and start trusting. You're not the issue in the room. I know that's a very shocking statement. I'm not the issue in the room. Jesus Christ is the issue in the room the universe, period. It's his death, his dying, his resurrection that gives us life. Again, the religious leaders don't get it. They can't hear spiritual realities behind what Jesus is saying. Verse 52. You thought I was never getting to it. I know. Verse 52. The Jews, therefore, began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man, right, with a tremendous amount of scorn, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 53, Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Verse 54, who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, it's not literal. It's a metaphor. It's a spiritual reality. What he is saying is that eating his flesh, drinking his blood, is in reference to belief. Appropriating yourself personally to the person of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection, your only hope of eternal life. Right? And, and I'll show you that, that parallel between the eating and drinking. Look back at verse 40. Look back in verse, verse 40, and you can see the parallels here. 
Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So the requirement in verse 40 for eternal life is to look, right? Behold him, and then believe upon him. And then and the promise of eternal life is given to the believer, which Christ says, again, I'll raise him up on the last day. Now look at verse 54 again. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So you get the same result in verse 40 and the same result in verse 54. But instead of, as in verse 40, beholding the Son and believing upon him, Jesus substitutes eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The outcome, again, is eternal life. Therefore, eating Jesus' flesh, drinking his blood, refers to believing upon him, believing upon him in his person, his death, on the cross as your substitute. Again, your only hope of eternal life. You see the parallel there. Jesus therefore said, Truly, truly, I said to you, unless you eat the flesh of the, man, uh, of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. He who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day. Uh, on the last day. And, and you know, he doesn't make it any easier for them. We don't dumb it down here. We just teach the truth. And he doesn't make it any easier for the people who are already confused. Verse 55. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now again, why does he do that? Why does he intentionally make it, which is difficult, even more obscure? Why does he intentionally make the whole thing offensive to the hearer? Why does he use such graphic language as eating his flesh and drinking his blood to describe believing upon him? Well, I'll give you a couple of thoughts, a couple of reasons. You might remember the Jews, they were anticipating a Messiah, but what kind of Messiah were they looking for? They're looking for a political deliverer, Right? They wanted a political Messiah. The idea, the concept of a crucified Messiah was a major stumbling block for the Jews. Over in John 12 and 32, Jesus said, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. And he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The multitude answered him and said, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Again, they don't get it. They can't get it. But not just them. Think about, remember uh, the Lord with his uh, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Even they didn't get it. Luke 24, 25, he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things, to enter into his glory? <clears throat> and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scripture. Paul, Roman, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles' foolishness. Acts 17, 2, according to the, Paul's custom, he went into them uh, for three Sabbath reasons with them from the Scripture, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and be raised again from the dead, saying, Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. They were looking for a political Messiah, a political Savior. Jesus didn't come the first time to be a political messiah. He didn't come the first time to be a conquering king. He came the first time to be a suffering servant. He came the first time to be a substitute. He came the first time to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, remember in the context of the story of all these people who are falling around the lake, there's a great group of people that wanted to come and take him and make him king by force. Right? 
I guarantee you, he is the king, and one day he will be a king who will reign literally, physically, here on this earth that he made. He will rule over his kingdom here in time, but the cross has to come before the crown. Again, he came the first time to give his life as a ransom for many. He came because God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He comes again. He will come again. And he comes again. He'll come as the conquering king. He'll rule in power. He'll come and judge the nations as it says in Revelation chapter 19. But again, the first time he comes, he comes as the Passover lamb. The lamb of God. He comes to offer up his life, his blood, as the perfect sacrifice as the only one who can protect those who apply his blood into their own lives. And again, I guarantee you, everybody who's listening to this sermon on, on the day that it's being preached, the, the first day, they're, they're familiar with it. They're familiar with the, the slaughtering and the eating of the Passover lamb. And Jesus is intentionally using graphic and shocking language, and he is applying it to himself because those who are true seekers for eternal life he is trying to jar them into realizing their need for Messiah. Their need is not for literal bread. Their need for Messiah is the one who will come and give his life on their behalf. He's doing it intentionally. He's jarring them. He's not being, he's not being polite and kind and, 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 and cordial and, you know, well, you, you might have cancer and it might be really bad if you have cancer and, and, you know, it could be really... No, I, it's cancer. I got a knife. I'm cutting it out. Physical bread, folks, isn't going to solve your problem eternally. I am. I am the bread of life. I am the Passover lamb. And you have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. He is obscuring the truth for those who have already decided that they're not going to believe upon him. Much in the same fashion that he spoke to crowds in parables. Why did he speak the parables? Because he's obscuring for the, the truth of those who have already made up their minds not to believe. I told you, the Jewish religious leaders, I told you last time, if you look back at chapter 5, verse 18, and then at the uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, the Jewish religious leaders had already determined that they were going to kill him. Where is he speaking? Verse 59, I'll give you a clue. He's at the, uh, he's at the um, uh, temple there at Capernaum, right? Synagogue. The Jewish religious leaders had already determined to put him to death. They had rejected Jesus in total. They had refused to acknowledge who he was in spite and who he is in spite of the evidence. Therefore, they have no hunger for the bread that comes down from heaven. They have no thirst for righteousness because they're self-satisfied. He's not speaking to them. He's speaking to those who are going to listen to him. In spite of the fact, right, what happens in the end of the chapter? The crowd leaves, turns to the disciples, the twelve, and says, you guys leaving too? He says, where shall we go? Because you alone have the words of eternal life. I told you the whole thing's about spiritual defection. I told you that people like Jesus, when, when he's a Jesus you can control, when he's a Jesus that you can mold and manipulate in your own life, kind of like a, a, either a Gumby figure that you stretch and move, or like a genie in a bottle, when you can work him and you can get what you want from him. Everybody loves Jesus. But when Jesus starts making hard demands and starts making difficult statements, the crowd flees. When Jesus says, look, if you believe upon me, you're going to take up your cross and die daily. 
When, when, when Jesus says, if you really want to follow me in this perverse world, right, you're going to be willing to stand for me in this perverse world. People go, I, I don't know. You know, I, I was kind of more into the cruise ship Christianity. I didn't really sign up for a battleship. I didn't sign up to go to war. Well, guess what, my friends, you're at war. If you're a true believer in Christ, there's nobody or nothing in this world that has any desire for your spiritual well-being, I guarantee you. Jesus says harsh words to the vast majority of people who don't get it. Let me ask you a question. Now that you're starting to get a little bit better picture of the passage that you maybe thought at one time was obscure, you hear it, and now you're starting to get it. Are they harsh words for you, or are they for you and your ears the word of life? Right? You hear because you have been given life. It's not because you have life you hear. You hear because God has raised you. Right? The people, only people that are getting up from the battlefield are the ones that already have life to obey the command. Jesus is offering himself. Right? Verse 52. Therefore the Jews began to argue, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Again, a tremendous amount of scorn, sarcasm. They look at Jesus as nothing more than this man because they're unwilling to believe. Again, this is why Jesus spoke in parables. He obscures the truth to those who refuse to believe upon him. And again, that's the reality in the, in the spiritual realm. If you're a listener online or in another room or in this room, I don't know, and you continue to listen to the truth, and you continue to harden your heart to the truth, you reject the truth, you reject the person of the, the Lord Jesus Christ, you harden your heart to the glory of Christ, there will come a day when God will harden your heart. You think you're hardening your heart. There will come a day when God will harden your heart, and you'll not be able to respond to the truth. You'll keep on hearing but not understand. You'll keep on seeing but not perceive as a judgment against your sin and rebellion against God's mercy. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink the blood, you have no life in yourself. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day, for the flesh is true, for my flesh is true food and my blood true drink. So again, eating and drinking refer to belief. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So again, unless you eat, it's an analogy. Jesus just taking a simple, everyday, ordinary example out of the routine of life, trying to communicate profound spiritual truth. There are at least five parallels in that statement of eating that appropriating a spiritual truth five parallels to eating physically to eating spiritually for example number one and these are all self-evident number one food and drink is of no use unless you take it in <laughs> not very profound right food and drink is not no use unless you eat it and drink it right you got to eat the food you got to drink the, the, the drink you have to personally appropriate likewise spiritual truth it does no good unless it's internalized Knowing the truth without acting on the truth profits nobody anything except more severe judgment. Number two, eating and drinking is prompted only by those who have a hunger. Right? Eating and drinking is prompted only by those who have a hunger. If you're full, if you're satisfied, you're not going to eat. You eat and you drink as a result or a response to a felt need. You eat when you're hungry. You drink when you're thirsty. Sinners who are self-satisfied 
who are self-satisfied in their sin, again, they have no hunger and thirst for righteousness. That was the case of the Jewish religious leaders there of Israel. Number three, when you eat and drink, it becomes a part of you. Again, food and drink are assimilated into your body. They provide you nourishment. Same thing with Christ. Spiritually, Christ can't be admired from a distance. Uh, you can't uh, uh, be impressed with him uh, on a personal level, or you can be impressed with him on a personal level. You can be impressed with his teaching. Uh, you can even feel bad the fact he had to go to the cross and die. But until you appropriate him by faith and all he is and all he has done, and because, until that becomes part of you, it has no effect on you, has no true effect on you. Just like eating and drinking has no effect unless you actually take it in. Number four, to eat and drink, you've got to have trust in the food. Right? You've got to have tr trust in the food and the drink. Nobody eats uh, food or drinks uh, drink that they uh, intentionally understand is poisonous. Right? Every act of eating, every act of drinking implies that you've got some faith in that food. There's something that is uh, palatable and not uh, harmful to you. When there's a breakout of a coli at a certain restaurant uh, that's a national chain, I make sure I never eat there. I don't go say, well, man, I'm going to go see if I can have some of that stuff. I mean, I have not been really... Uh, you know, de deathly sick in a long time. So, right? You don't do that. You got some trust in the food. Same thing on a spiritual level. You have trust in the person of Christ. That metaphor, eating and drinking, we understand that. You trust him for your eternal destiny. And number five, eating's personal. So again, they're not profound, but they're very practical, right? You can't eat for somebody else. Same thing is true of salvation. You can't repent for somebody else. You can't believe upon someone else, uh, or, or you can't believe on someone else's behalf. You can't appropriate Christ for another individual. You've got to eat your own food. Same way you personally have to come and appropriate Christ. You have to believe that he is the Savior, and not only the Savior, but that he is your Savior. You have to believe not only that he died on the cross, but you have to believe that he died on the cross for you, paying the penalty for your sin. You have to believe and receive and appropriate him into your innermost being, just like you would food and drink. You're feeding upon Christ by faith because he alone is what is necessary for eternal life. Verse 53 again, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. And I just wanted to point out that eat and drink there in verse 53 are aorist tense verbs. They're not present tense verbs. You see, what does that mean? Well, an aorist is something that's already happened in the past. Therefore, it suggests a one-time appropriation of Christ at the moment of salvation. Not the continual drinking and eating, the continual resacrifice of the body and the blood of Christ, again, as the heir portrayed in the Roman Catholic Mass. Right? You eat once, you drink once, you have salvation in Christ, because of Christ, not because of you. And again, note what it says here, unless you eat the flesh and drink his blood, you have no life. Again, it's a warning. You reject Christ, there's no eternal life. There's no hope of eternal life. Verse 54, he who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life. You repent, you place your faith in Christ, you appropriate him, and you enjoy life at the moment of salvation without end, a quality of life that the world cannot offer you. And the third time, verse 54, he offers that, makes that promise, I'll raise him up on the last day. So it's the promise of eternal life, it's the promise of eternal security in Christ, it's the promise of resurrection. Because he defeated death, we defeat death. Verse 55, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Again, he is the only one who provides life of God to the believer. 
In light of that, he says, verse 56, he eats my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. It's a promise of not just knowledge, but it's a promise of union, communion, a promise of a present intimate relationship with the Savior of the universe. As a result of that, he says, verse 57, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. He who eats me, he also has life because of me. Again, Jesus is reinstating. There's an intimate communion between the true believer and he's restating in himself and restating that fact that the Father has <clears throat> given him life. He said that back in chapter 5, verse 26. The Father gives me life. I give life to the world. Verse 58, this bread which came down out of heaven, uh, and not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread shall live forever. Again, he's making this continual comparison between the manna and himself. The manna, the guys ate in the wilderness, they died. The true believer, the one who comes and eats upon Christ, present active in this case, who eats upon Christ, continually feeds upon Christ, will never die, but will live forever. Verse 59, he says these things in the synagogue, right? He says these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. It's a tremendous sermon. It's a tremendous truth. Remember when he made the bread? out of nothing the text says he just kept multiplying bread and says everybody ate as much as they wanted and then they were what satisfied so much they collected 12 basketfuls right and christ is saying here look if you want to be spiritually satisfied that multiplies without no end that can turn that you can feed on him uh, eternally right Uh, that he offers himself that as that person to you the one who will satisfy you eternally Calvin, in his commentary, laments that there's not many people, however, that are fully satisfied in Christ. How few, he says, are those satisfied in Christ alone? And that's a sad reality. It's that way in the quote-unquote Christian world, wherever in the world that is. Christ isn't enough. You need Christ plus something else. Now I'm here to tell you, Christ is all you need. Christ is absolutely sufficient. This morning, ask yourself, what are you satisfied with? Who are you satisfied with? Is it Christ and him alone? Do you feed upon his death as your only hope of eternal life? Do you just believe upon him or do you go to him daily for the well-being of your soul? Do you just believe upon him or, or do you look with a present reality of his presence with you and you look to be in his presence now but in his presence eternally? David says in Psalm 16, 11, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there's pleasures forevermore. I know we can't always be happy in life because there are difficult things in a fallen world, but we can always have joy. My joy doesn't come from my circumstances. My joy comes from the Lord. And he's promised for those who love him that he, we here in his presence will have fullness of joy, pleasures forever. This sermon that the Lord is preaching that he is the bread of life is a profound truth, but again, it's a great invitation. Again, look at verse 51, and I'll close. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven, if anyone, if anyone eats of this bread, he shall live. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Or some of your versions say, whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood. If anyone whoever again it's an invitation it's an appeal to come to christ 
because he alone offers forgiveness of sin. He alone offers eternal life. And to anyone and to everyone who has simply repent and believe upon him, whoever trusts in him by faith alone, he offers you a gift that money cannot buy. He offers you an opportunity to be his beloved child and child and to know him and to know presently his love. Repent. Believe upon Christ, the one who said, I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. It's a tremendous invitation, but it's also a tremendous warning. Verse 53, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. One day, our lives are all coming to an end. Eat well, jog, good. One day, our lives are coming to an end. If you know Christ, he's promised you eternal life. If you reject God's mercy through his son, apart from Christ, your life will come to a bitter end. You will face a certain literal, eternal judgment and condemnation of unspeakable sorrow and sadness. If you've heard the word today of the living God through his incarnate son, through the living scripture, repent. Don't wait for tomorrow. Tomorrow is the devil's playground. The devil wants you to make today decisions tomorrow. Put it off till tomorrow. Because tomorrow never comes. Tomorrow comes, I'll do it tomorrow, right? Tomorrow is the devil's playground. If you've heard the word of the Lord, respond by faith. 